Hi there, how's it going, man? Um, they keep the DHS is surveilling me without a warrant, always. And they keep deleting my podcasts. So if you hear this, it's a, you know, it's like a one in fifty percent chance. It's a freaking miracle, cause yeah, they're really trying to. They're shut. They have shut me, shut us down, me and my family. Family. Okay. Latest breaking news on Trump going to fucking jail! Exclamation point. Modest touch, and I was, um, modest touch, and MSNBC. Lawrence, MSNBC. Good enough for government work. I call, this is called, I call for Trump's immediate imprisonment and disqualification from office. Okay, let's go back to. Hi there, welcome back. Thanks for 225 or was it 226k on the podcast? Appreciate that. There's a new modest touch. Jack Smith mocks Trump lawyers with brilliant. Motion. Jack Smith in another motion today that he filed in his January 6th indictment uh, in, di- in the District Hot of Columbia. What's on the train of Trump going to fucking jail? Jack Smith is just absolutely wiping the floor with Donald Trump's lawyers. I, I, this motion that was that was filed today, it's the government's response in opposition to the defendant's motion for exclusion of time under the Speedy Trial Act. It really is amazing that the, that Trump's lawyers are the way they are and that they don't know the law. And I'm going to read to you from this uh, because it's so powerful. And the whole motion, it's only four pages long. Jack Smith is literally pointing out to them that they don't know the law. So let's talk about what the motion is that the defense made and what the motion is, the response is from Jack Smith. So the defendant, okay, the defense attorneys for Donald Trump, defendant, his motion for exclusion of time under the Speedy Trial Act, uh, it's the electronic case filing number 18, and that's what that means is if you go onto the docket and people can go onto the docket themselves and look at various uh, filings, and that's where we get the motion practice and the filings because they are electronically filed with the court. Number 18 was uh, was Trump's lawyer's filing. It made a motion saying that certain time should be excluded from the Speedy Trial Act. Now let's talk about what the Speedy Trial Act is and what it isn't. The Speedy Trial Act essentially says that the defendant has a right to a speedy trial and the government has to be ready within a certain period of time. And the period of time is depends on whether it's a felony or a misdemeanor and everybody has a, a speedy trial clock, okay? So 
it's in federal government, it's 18 United States Code, Section 3161, C1, and it's the trial of a defendant shall commence within 70 days, 70 days, from the date that the defendant appeared before a judicial officer of the court in which such charge is pending. Uh, and then it goes on to say, excluding... Uh, then there's Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 45A1A, okay, excluding the day of the event that triggers the period here, the date of the initial appearance from the arraignment from the 70-day clock. So what does all that mean? Let's, let's just back up for a minute. So speedy trial means you have to, basically, the defendant has a right to a speedy trial within 70 days. People might say, but wait a minute, why do criminal trials sometimes happen six months later, eight months later, a year later, five years later? That's more than 70 days in federal court. And that's because not all of the days are chargeable to the government, meaning not all the days count. There's certain excluded days, right? And those are written right into the statute. Or there's case law that's interpreted it. It's very clear. When I was a prosecutor, uh, felonies, for example, we had a six-month speedy trial date, right? And we had to be ready within six months. And there would be all these arguments about, well, you know, this time is, is this time excluded or included in the days? And, you know, you go back and forth. And some, there are sometimes that uh, there are waivers. You know, sometimes defense attorneys will say, hey, you know, we really want to come in and talk to you and make a pitch to you to please give my guy a better offer. And, and the prosecutor would say, okay, but only if you waive speedy trial, meaning the time from when you asked to the time we speak, a certain period of time will not be included in that six-month period. So here, again, it's 70 days, and and there are just absolute easy things that are included in the law. It's not, you know, this doesn't require a Harvard Law degree or, you know, anything to understand. I mean, these are pretty simple concepts in the law and about what's included and what's excluded in, in at least the things that the defense was asking for here. So let me just read to you some of the things from, from this motion, because honestly, Jack Smith says it better than I ever could. So he says the motion for exclusion of time under the Speedy Trial Act is unnecessary and premature and fails to recognize that the Speedy Trial Act protects the public's strong interest in a speedy trial. The motion seeks to exclude time from August 3rd, 2023 to August 28th, 2023, but fails to recognize that all of this time since the defendant's initial appearance has already been and continues to be excluded under the act. Similarly, the defendant fails to acknowledge that one of his main bases for seeking to exclude the time, that he will be filing numerous critical motions, will in and of itself stop the clock or toll the time. This is because a speedy trial under the Act does not necessarily mean a trial within 70 days. Rather, it means a fair and efficient trial within a reasonable period of time, including appropriate exclusions for reasons such as the time required for consideration of motions. The court should deny the defendant's motion without prejudice and reconsider the issue of exclusion of time under the Act when a trial date is set on August 28th. So he then goes on to talk about the background. On August 1st, a grand jury returned an indictment uh, in violation of 
you know, he lists all the statutes, the four charges that he's that he's charged with. Uh, the defendant made his initial appearance and was arraigned in the District of Columbia on August 3rd. And at that hearing, defense counsel made an oral motion to exclude the time under the act. On August 4th, the government filed a motion seeking the entry of a protective order. And the court took the government's motion and the defendant's opposition under advisement pending a hearing that has since been scheduled now for August 11th. In addition, the court has ordered briefing by the parties on a proposed trial date, with the government's brief due August 10th and the defendant's due August 17th, with the expectation that the court will consider these briefs and determine a trial date August 28th. Now, if you recall, Jack Smith also, we, we did another hot take, unless you haven't listened to it yet, but Ben and I did another hot take that uh, also on August 10th, that um, the government also filed a motion. Uh... With the Fries app, you can always save big on your favorites with personalized coupons and deals, so you can spend less. Their motion that was due on August 10th for when they want to have a trial and they asked for January 2nd 2024 okay so we'll see on August 28th what the judge decides but the government goes on to then say the court should deny the defendant's motion okay this motion to exclude the time because the specific relief requested that the exclusion of time between August 3rd the initial appearance and August 28th the scheduled hearing already will occur under the operation of other provisions of the act. August 3rd in and of itself is excluded from the 70-day period. See United States Code section 3161 C1. The trial of a defendant shall commence within uh, 70 days from the date that the trial has, that the defendant has appeared before a judicial officer. Um, then it goes on excluding the day of the event that triggers the period. Here the date of the initial appearance and arraignment from the 70-day clock. August 4th, then, is the next day, through at least August 11th, will be excluded by operation of the defendant's oral motion for speedy trial made on August 3rd, the government's motion for a protective order, ECF number 10, the electronic filing number 10, and the defendant's written motion for speedy trial, which is ECF number 18, 18 United States Code 3161 H1D, providing that any delay resulting from a pretrial motion from the filing of the motion through the conclusion of the hearing or other prompt disposition of such motions shall be excluded in computing the time which the trial must convince. So you see what's happening here? Jack Smith is going date by date from August 3rd when the defendant came in all the way to the date that the next time uh, they're in court, which is August 28th, and saying, look, defense attorneys, I don't know what, why you're making this motion because all of this time is already excluded under the law. It's already doesn't count in the Speedy Trial Act. And uh, so they're at that point. And then it says more generally, the defendant's motion fails to recognize that the act and the Sixth Amendment protect not only the defendant's rights, but also the public's strong interest in the efficient administration of justice. There's a societal interest in providing a speedy trial, which exists separate and apart from and at times um, in opposition to the interests of the accused. To this end, none of the defendants perfunctory and I love this line. To this end, none of the defendants perfunctory and undeveloped arguments justify the court's exclusion of time at the juncture of this case. And it goes on and on and um, um, and then it, you know, in conclusion, the defendant moves for exclusion of time, but the court should deny this request without prejudice as it is unnecessary. So this is an unnecessary motion because it's already, all this time is already excluded. Now, 
what's really bananas about this whole thing, okay, is as a prosecutor, I am scratching my head because this is, we're literally in upside down bizarro world. Prosecutors are the ones who want time excluded because if the speedy trial clock runs out, you can't, your case is dismissed. You cannot do this case. Like you are constantly trying to get ready and do stuff within it. And the defense attorneys don't want time excluded. They want all the time charged to the people so that they can run out the clock, that they can not give the people enough time to prepare. I call them the people because that's what we call ourselves. We're not the government. We were the people. You know, to give the prosecutors time to prepare. And they want to get this case to trial as soon as possible and try to catch the prosecution flat-footed, unprepared, or run out the clock so that they can get the case dismissed saying, oh, they didn't, they brought the case too soon. They weren't ready within their time period. But this is upside-down bizarro world. They want the time excluded so that they can what? Delay, 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 because that is Donald Trump's number one trial tactic, to delay. He doesn't want things to go to court. He wants to never go to trial, try to win the election, and then get pardoned by himself or step down for three seconds, have the vice president do it, and then go back. So that's what he's trying to do here. It's hard to figure out why he wants time excluded, like I said, because that's not the usual course of things. But here we are and they don't know the law. Asking for time to be excluded, that already is excluded, which, you know, clearly they don't know the law because they're arguing for something that defense attorneys don't usually argue for. It's usually the government. So, and Jack Smith points out to them how they don't know the law. So that's uh, an incredible thing that is happening in this case. Uh, stay tuned. Thank you for listening and watching. I'm Karen Friedman Agnifilo with Legal AF. Uh, watch me on uh, Wednesdays with Michael Popak or catch Legal AF on Saturdays with Ben Mizellis and Michael Popak. And uh, shout out to the Midas Mighty and everybody else who follows the Midas Touch movement. Hey Midas Mighty, love this report? Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch. Keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. Tristagram. Tristagram. I should change my name. Talk about sticker shop. Start a new, uh, Shopping for that shiny new appliance is <laughs> expensive. But what if you could get that... Hey, dum dum. What are you doing up there? Fuck. This is Tart uh, of America. On today's pod, Donald Trump is headed back to court while he awaits a fourth indictment. Ron DeSantis shakes up his campaign again. Trump debates debating. And then Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer joins me to talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, Tommy Tuberville, and UFOs. But first, in a huge victory for abortion rights, voters in Ohio on Tuesday, resoundingly defeated Issue 1, a cynical attempt to prevent Ohioans from amending the Constitution to include the right to an abortion in November. 
With a turnout of more than 3 million voters, Issue 1 was defeated 57-43, a huge margin in a state that Trump won by 10 points in the last two elections. Alyssa, this is great news. How are you feeling? My uterus is dancing, Pfeiffer. I am so excited. I was so excited about this. Here's the thing. When are Republicans going to learn trying to pull jiggery-pokery in August is not going to work for them? They tried this last summer in Kansas, and they got whooped 60-40, and here they are again. So I am, I am very happy. Also, Pfeiffer, abortion motivates people. Reproductive rights is motivating people to the polls. And so I was very excited by this news. I mean, just to put it in perspective, the nearly three million votes that were cast is nearly twice as many votes as were counted in the state's primary elections in 2022 when there were huge races for governor and Senate and House up for grabs. So the turnout is unbelievable. Republicans specifically picked this theoretically sleepy Tuesday in August when people are getting ready to go back to school or on vacation to try to slip one past the pro-choice majority in Ohio. And they failed, and they failed miserably. Yeah, it was really sad for them. Fuck around and find out. I will also say that when I put in the outline, Melissa, how are you feeling? My uterus is dancing was not on my bingo card of your potential responses. I knew that. I knew that. Is, I had, that's I a had failure to on my part. I should have known. I should have known. <laughs> I'm also looking forward to the My Uterus is Dancing merch to come to the... Uh, you know it's a matter of time. Source. Yes, of course it is. It's a matter of time. Now, I... We want to be careful not to draw too much significance from one of these sort of irregularly scheduled special elections. But are there any lessons that you would take from these results that can be applied in Ohio, nationally, for the Democratic Party? I mean, I think that when Roe was about to be overturned, or at least when the decision was you know, leaked months before it actually came down, People were saying, oh, this isn't going to be such a big deal. Everyone's going to get used to it. It's going to be fine. And I think that we're seeing it's, it's not fine. It's not fine among independents and swing voters. And it's actually not fine again among, uh, among some Republicans. That, you know, here I think the Republicans are the dog that caught the car. And now they don't exactly know what to do. I think that they want some restrictions on abortion. I don't think anybody watching the cases, the case rather, that's uh, happening down in Texas where women who were denied abortions are being asked to testify about what happened to them, listening to a woman who knew that her fetus was not going to survive and was forced to carry it to term, and then when she went to the hospital, was told, you have to be septic before we can treat you. I think that when a lot of folks envisioned bro being overturned, they didn't think and so I think that this is I think that this is much more motivating than people think it will be. I think that candidates who hold extremely severe and extreme positions on abortion are becoming less and less desirable. There are moments in political history that fundamentally shift the electoral balance in the country. They change they make, cause coalitions to move about. Civil rights was one of those. Ronald Reagan's presidency was another. Barack Obama's presidency was one. Dobbs currently looks like it is one of those moments that changes politics in a significant and sustainable way. If you look at both the where in a couple of, I think I think that's true in a couple of different sectors. One, the number of Americans who say they're pro-choice is at a record since Dobbs. The number right. of Americans who say they're anti-choice or describe themselves as quote-unquote pro-life is at a, at a nadir since Dobbs. 
the energy uh, around the issue is stunning. The, the turnout in this election is mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling that three million people would turn out. This is the only thing on the ballot. There's nothing else. There's no gubernatorial primary. There's no Senate primary. There was just abortion. And it was an issue that was disguised to try to make it not be about abortion. Right. Two, in the elections where we have had straight-up abortion-related ballot initiatives or constitutional referendum on the ballot, and the county in... In, in, so that's Ohio, Kansas, Michigan, California, and, and a couple other places. And in those places, the pro-abortion side of the argument outpoll, outperformed Joe Biden's numbers from 2020. So that means that there, it's a turnout driver. It means that there are some people who maybe who did not vote in 2020, but have come out because uh, they they see their freedoms and their rights being taken away from them. It, I mean, it's just an absolutely dramatic thing in. In Ohio, 20% of Trump counties voted against issue one. And Ohio is a state that if you had asked anyone before Dobbs that it would have been an issue, a state where an abortion referendum would fail and fail miserably. And that, that logic was clearly wrong, but it was probably wrong then, but it's obviously wrong now. Dobbs has changed up absolutely everything. And I think if you want to take a lesson from this for Democrats, it is that we are more than a year after the decision. Abortion is still clearly a driving, galvanizing issue in politics, but I don't think Democrats should assume that that will still be the case in 2024. It very well may be, but with every passing day, there's always a chance that, that something can recede further into, into the background. It could become less salient. And does it mean that there still won't be huge majorities of people who care passionately about it and are driven by it? But the races are also narrow and we're operating on such thin margins that the argument here is we have to do everything we can to keep it on the top of the agenda. We have to argue that if you reelect Sherrod Brown and we expand our Senate majority and keep the White House and take the House, we'll pass a law codifying Roe. We have to tell people that the Republicans were to do the same thing and to take control of government that, that they will pass what they have told us they will do, which is a federal apportionment. We just have to keep, I think there's an argument, the lesson here is not that abortion is a secret weapon, it is that if we want, voters care about it, and we gotta make sure they still care about it in 2024, to the same extent they do right now. I agree, and Buddy, also, I think that there are other issues, ancillary issues, that people did not foresee. I mean, there are states in this country that are gynecological deserts where OBGYNs are fleeing the state. Um, I think in either South Dakota or North Dakota, I think it's North Dakota, there are about 66 gynecologists left in the entire state, and they are not spread equally throughout the state. They are located in two of the major cities. And I don't think that when Dobbs was overturned that people thought, people who were rooting for this, I don't think they understood that that doctors were going to be targeted in the way there were, that there would be like bounty laws in Texas to turn people in and become vigilantes. And I think that it's just, it is so far and it's so extreme and that it is affecting healthcare in a way that's so profound. I think that that's important to sort of keep talking about too, because women who aren't even pregnant can't get healthcare in a lot of states in this country right now, or it is at least prohibitively difficult for them to do so. Now, of course, the vote on issue one is not the end of the road here in Ohio. Right. Help people understand what comes next and what's at stake with this vote in November. Okay, so in November, 
um, the, quote, right to reproductive freedom with protections for healthcare safety, the longest name ever, uh, <laughs> ballot measure is up. Uh, it is it seeks to protect uh, the reproductive rights of people in Ohio. And with issue one failing, now that only needs a 50% plus one to uh, be enshrined into the Ohio State Constitution. Whereas if issue one had gone into law, it would have been 60%, which would have been very bad. And all the polling has shown to date that there is a majority in support of reproductive freedom in the country, but in Ohio as well, which is why these Republicans so cynically tried to rig the game by change, by using issue one to increase the threshold to 60%. And I think while every political prognosticator would believe that the favorites in that November race is the effort to amend the Constitution to enshrine abortion rights, we shouldn't assume it's going to happen. Republicans are going to learn from their loss here. They are going to spend more money. They're going to be more deceptive. They're going to be more dirty tricks. And so we're going to have to do everything we possibly right. can to help. And so for everyone who wants to help Ohioans win in November and fight back against abortion bans happening all over the country, go to votesaveamerica.com slash bans where you can find opportunities to volunteer, organizations to donate to, to help fight for reproductive freedom and abortion rights all in Ohio and across the country. All right, Alyssa, that was it for the good news. Let's, uh -oh. let's get to, the, let's get to the, uh, the more challenging parts of our, the weird of, news? of our political hellscape. <laughs> this week, Donald Trump is waiting for a potential court hearing on whether he will face a protective order in the January 6th case. And he seems to be taking this issue with his usual seriousness. Here's the twice impeached, thrice indicted former president at a campaign stop in New Hampshire on Tuesday. Let's take a listen. Because I'm sweating like a dog up here. But Does anybody want me to stop or should we go forward? Crooked Joe now wants the thug prosecutor, this deranged guy, to file a court order taking away my First Amendment rights so that I can't speak. So listen to this. We don't want you to speak about the case. The case. The case is, is a ridiculous case. It's a First Amendment case. There was never a second of any day that I didn't believe that that election was rigged. It was a rigged election. It was a rigged election and it was a stolen, disgusting election. And this country should be ashamed. And they go after the people that want to prove that it was rigged and stolen. And then on Wednesday, Trump took to Truth Social to personally and directly attack Judge Chuckin, the judge in the January 6th case, by name, accusing her of an array of bullshit, conflicts of interest, and conspiracy theories. Now, Alyssa, I have to ask. Yeah. Do you think this is... Is there a strategy here? Is Trump trying to provoke uh, provoke the judge, or can he just not help himself? What do you think is going on? Come on now. He doesn't even know what he's doing. He, this is a man, and everyone should think about this. I mean, not people who listen to Pod Save America because they already know the answer, but buddy, this is a man with absolutely zero impulse control that he has proved time and time again. And, and and there are actually people in this country considering giving him the nuclear codes back. I mean, this Some, is like, like, like 
37% or whatever it is. But, I mean, buddy, you and I both know he has no strategy. He's in a chaos candidate, throw everything against the wall, see what sticks. He's trying to find something that further enrages his base as if they need more rage. Uh, but, yeah, he has no idea why. He's, he's, he will take whatever comes from his, from his chaos and his nonsense. I generally agree with that, and I generally sort of laugh at the people who try to reverse engineer strategy from Trump's insanity. But I think there is a consistent theme in how Trump has approached all of his many investigations and indictments and everything from Jim Comey, Bob Mueller, the impeachments, Adam, Adam Schiff, everything, is he just goes after the attacker. A mistrial? <laughs> Yeah, well, he, I mean, he just, he, he would, he's always wants to be punching someone, right? Yeah. He wants to raise questions. He wants to try to make it seem like everyone is crooked. Everyone's conflicted. It's not just him. And that generally politically by, you know, is enough for him to skate by. It mm -hmm. gives the people who want to be with him the ability, the fig leaf to stick with him, right? Where it's like, yeah, mm -hmm. sure, what Trump did is terrible, but... Like, these guys are all out to get him anyway. They don't really care. And this is an Obama judge, and Jack Smith goes after Republicans or whatever other bullshit. And and, it get, and for the people who are sort of, like, in the middle, who are pretty cynical about politics, who don't really pay engage with the news like in any great detail, in other words, the people who generally decide elections in this country, it's kind of easy to, like, throw up their arms and be like, ah, fuck, I don't know, you know, and then right. can move on to another issue. So it is, I'm not saying this is a plan, like, there's no whiteboard that is in his uh, legal strategy war room that's, like, attack the judge and attack Jack Smith. I think there's also an element of this where, and it was just why this, what happens with this protective order is so fascinating is, mm -hmm. and I remember many, many years ago, uh, Lovett described Trump's behavior during the 2016 campaign as the Raptors testing the fence in Jurassic Park. And I think that's a little what he's doing here, which is he just, yeah. he wants to see how far he can go before he gets burned. And he's going to push and push and push. And he does sort of understand that the judge can't really throw him in jail. I mean, technically right. she can throw him in jail, but she's not going to. And so right. what's she really going to do? And he'll do that until he'll, you know, he'll push and push and push until he gets bid. And we'll have to sort of see how that goes. And he might, you know, it, it, it's just, it's hard to see. This is not a good legal strategy, but as a political strategy goes, you could do worse, I think. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, there's, there's literally no downside to him doing what he's doing. I was trying to think what could happen short of them putting him in jail. He could be fined, right? I think I think they could. He find could be him fined, and, and he he won't pay. <laughs> like like the thing is, any any outcome you can see, he's sort of faced before, and he just didn't do it. <laughs> well, it's a little like how the classified doc. You, there's a way in which this kind of plays out a little bit like the classified documents thing, where he thought the rules didn't apply to him. He refused to to abide right. by them, ignored subpoenas, and then next thing you know, the FBI is at his house. And then, and then a few months after that, he's being indicted on 37 felony counts related to violations of the Espionage Act. And like that could happen here, it right? Where it's like he, he, gets, he gets fined, he gets fined. Like there's, there's a world in which he thinks he had, this is like, where he runs into someone who actually, like, like Jack Smith, essentially, who will, will take this seriously enough to do something about it. So we'll see. It's, I mean, it, it's clear that his, uh, 
he's not going to up until there's real consequences that matter to him. And maybe those can never come that he's not going to change his behavior. That, right, I think we exactly. can, we can, there's no, we reason. don't make predictions, but Donald Trump has other legal problems too. Reports are that Fulton County DA, Bonnie Willis could indict Trump as soon as next week for trying to overturn the election in Georgia. The New York times reports that Jack Smith is still investigating Trump's super PAC for potential financial crimes related to raising money based on false election claims. And perhaps most deliciously, we learned from the New York Times that earlier this year, Jack Smith got a subpoena to dig around in Trump's Twitter DMs, what I imagine is a dark and dangerous place. Listen, this is a lot. Like, to date, you could probably argue that none of this stuff has done any real damage to Trump politically. He's still probably gone up in the Republican polls, you know, the New York Times poll. Uh, from a week or so ago where he's essentially tied with Biden. But do you think there's a point where all of this becomes too much for voters to stomach? I mean, buddy, I wonder. I mean, the thing, I, I will say that the DMs are delicious. I mean, this, though, I think could also be one of the most traumatic things that we have had to experience. Like, when I think about listening to the January 6th hearing and hearing about him throwing steak and ketchup against the wall in the dining room and the ketchup dripping down, I thought that was pretty traumatic to hear. But when we find out, more likely than not, that he's been DMing with bots and and when he was supposed to be running the country, I think that it's, it's going to be a lot for everyone to handle. But I'm not sure that the people who support him, right, like, again, we're all repelled by this. We are exhausted. We can't take it. It's too much. But the people who support him, I'm not sure that any of this is going to matter. I mean, I think that the people, the 37 percent, you know, that, that ardently support him, I'm not sure that any of this is something where they're like, you know what? This is the straw that broke the camel's back. There has been so much else that this just, I mean, it all, again, it always depends on, on what they find and, and what could happen. But I'm just not sure he has set himself up as a martyr. His base supporters believe that. And I don't know that anything is, is going to change that. It's, it's really... Like if you were, it's just really hard to see the dynamics changing with Trump because they haven't changed one iota over an eight-year period. Right. He, the his approval rating has tracked within with a couple of exceptions. One being a huge spike uh, during the early days of COVID, which seems insane now, and then a huge drop right after January six. His approval rating has stayed within a three to four point band in the low 40s. He's like high 30s, low 40s. That's where he stays the whole time. He can get indicted. He can get impeached. He can have an insurrection. He can support Nazis. He can do all of these things right. and it sort of stays there. There, That is that baseline. And like that's what our experience tells us. We are um, scarred from thinking for eight years if this is the thing that's going to bring him down. Right In the campaign, it was attacking... The Gold Star families that spoke for oh, spoke at Hillary Clinton's convention, Access Hollywood, attacking the judge in this racist way, which is actually oh, very right. was 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 quite uh, prescient. We now, as we now know, and then every you know everything and throughout the course of the presidency, and it stayed the same. But then you also sort of think like, man, this guy is going to be 
And this week, a sort of interesting model for what the rest of this campaign is going to be like is that the entire conversation is going to be around his upcoming criminal trials. He's going to be in court, or his lawyers will be right. in court, filing motions. There will be hearings. They're going to be, he's going to be arraigned again, probably. And it's just like, at some point, for some number of voters, does that change something, right? Now, it's more likely to change it in a general election where he's the nominee, because right. the way the calendar works out is he, if you believe that the primary process will move along on a similar trajectory as 2016, and the polls kind of suggest it might, then he would become the nominee basically the week before the Alvin Bragg trial in New York on Hush Money is scheduled to start. The, we're going to get a, you know, in the January 6th hearing case, there is, I think we're going to, in the next week or two, there, Jack Smith is going to propose a trial date. And we'll know then. Just this idea that he is going to be in court for like the seven months of the general election is something that would I could, could potentially you would like to think would be somewhat damaging, uh, particularly for people like us who work in campaigns and think campaigns matter. Uh, that instead of traveling the country and doing rallies all the time, he'll be sitting in court for pretty serious for what is right now nearly eighty felony charges. Here's what I was going to say though. For him, I think it works. I think it works if martyrdom is his whole vibe and convincing his base and hopefully some other people because he can't win with just his base that he think about it if you're Trump not to give him any advice but if you're Trump who first of all there are only so many places he can still rally and get the crowds that he needs to get to look like he's doing well right do you think that's the case I kind of do I think that there are probably a handful of states and a handful of cities and you and I both know that once you've been to a city and you've done your big rally, it's it's diminishing returns every time you come back. And with Trump, if he has to project strength, you know, he goes, he does a rally. I just don't think there are that many states where he can, or cities that he can really rally people. I think for him, he's like coming out of trial and doing a press conference, some crazy fucking wild press conference on the steps of the courthouse. And I think that the big problem that the Republican Party has is that most of the leadership of their party has not come out against him. Like, there is no there is no one he's really running against in the primary. If any of them who have been so brave now and come out and been like, oh, what he did was bad. Okay, why would anyone believe you? You only said he was bad when you became his opponent, not when you could have just actually spoken the truth, if that's what you think. And so I feel like, I don't know, I guess I just, I, I feel bad. I don't think it's bad for him. I think that he can kind of make these trials work for him. I mean, it is, this is sort of maybe a crazy way of thinking about it. And this is very back of the envelope because I haven't given this a ton of thought before this. But probably the thing that is going to decide this election is not Trump's vote share, it's Biden's vote share. Yes. And because it's hard to imagine people who voted for Trump in 2020 voting for Biden in 2020. 24. Like there's, that's probably a pretty small sliver. Then you got some people who voted Trump 16, Biden 2020. Do they flip back? Do they flip third party? What is how much of Biden's 2020 vote does he get back out in 2024? If there's even the slightest uh, drop, then he loses some of these states if Trump holds his numbers. And so it's just it's, it is a very interesting thing that Trump has all of these problems, and if he. Biden sort of has the harder job to hold his coalition together than Trump does because Trump's is just a more 
ideologically, demographically, geographically homogenous coalition than Biden's, which is spans from you know some former Trump voters, never Trump Republicans, to you know highly progressive Bernie Sanders supporters under the age of 25. Right? It's a that's a much more it's a greater challenge. But if Trump were to lose, the person that everyone thought he would lose to in the primary, at least, is Ron DeSantis. LOL. LOL is right. On Tuesday, Ron DeSantis fired his campaign manager. This is his third staff shakeup in a month. His, uh, his campaign has had innumerable strategic resets, pivots. He was doing. He was going to be more conservative, then more moderate, do more media, less media. I've lost track of all the ways in which they're trying to rebrand this campaign. Alyssa first. Based on the staff shakeups and this month, this summer long, this summer of resets with Ron DeSantis, have you ever seen anyone pull off a Band-Aid more slowly? Buddy, this isn't even pulling off a Band-Aid. I mean, has he even pulled the Band-Aid off? This That's is, a great question. Like, I don't feel like the Band-Aid's been pulled off. This is... He hasn't changed his messaging, near as I can tell. Like, a shakeup, if you go back in history to shakeups we all remember... They involved actual tumult. You know what I mean? Firing his campaign manager that no one ever heard of and hadn't run a campaign doesn't, and then replacing them with someone roughly similar is not like a reset or a shakeup. He's not changing. He hasn't come out and been like, like it's pretty interesting actually when you think about it. He hasn't come out and been like, this is my platform. I mean, I, we kind of know what it is, but it's just, he's like, here I am. I'm just this very not charismatic man from Florida. He's an uncharismatic Florida man. <laughs> yes. The, the way that he has handled this first bit of turbulence in his campaign is just one of the most incompetent, indecisive things I've ever seen in political history. It is a masterclass in how you not do things. And that, with campaigns, the fish always rots from the head. And that is, this is Ron DeSantis's fault. He does not know what he stands for. He doesn't know why he's running. He doesn't have confidence in himself as a politician or a candidate. There is a, there is a way to do campaign shakeups. They happen all the time. A campaign... They were supposed to do well, hits bottom, they, the donors freak out, they tell the candidate that if you don't make changes, we're walking away, and so the, now all of a sudden, the, they don't have the money to pay the staff or to pay for the huge headquarters they bought when they thought they'd be this front runner, and the rule of campaign shakeups is the Michael Corleone rule from the last scene in Godfather. You handle all of the family's business in one day. Yeah. You... You whatever staff changes you have to make, you fire them and you announce the new person taking the role on that day. You announce you do a big story where you tell them what the new strategy is going to be. You make a hard pivot. You do not do it like this. It is just this Death is by why a thousand cuts. it's it is so poorly done. And this is and it's not just that Ron DeSantis is not a good on the stump politician. He is not a good political manager. And how people run their campaigns is actually a pretty good predictor of what kind of president they're going to be. Joe Biden ran a tight ship, even when his campaign was not performing great. They stuck together. They got it done. Obama famously ran the no drama Obama campaign that we worked on, did incredibly well. Donald Trump's campaign, we saw what it looked like. We saw what his White House looked like. And so this would give me great pause 
if I was a one of these like MAGA adjacent billionaires who are funding Ron DeSantis, this guy does not have what it takes to do it, either behind the scenes or on the stump. No, it's kind of like uh, what's that saying? If you elect a clown to run the kingdom, the clown doesn't become the king. The kingdom becomes a circus. But that is where we are. And I think the problem with DeSantis and his shakeup is that, like, he's not actually sure. I think if you asked him why is he shaking things up, it's like, because I'm losing. But he doesn't know why he's losing. Like, he doesn't understand fundamentally, I think, as a baby pundit, that uh, the delta between he and Trump is so large, so vast in the polls that he he has to take Trump on. No reset is going to fix the fact that his strategy doesn't work. And that's, I think, what's interesting. You know, he he's like, oh, it's the campaign manager. It's this, it's that. We Yeah, maybe they did spend too much money, but that's like not the fundamental problem. He has no charisma. He is a dish rag on the stump. And in order to, to make up some of the space between he and Trump right now, he, he has to say what he thinks. If he thinks Trump is fine, why is he running? But, but all of them, aside from maybe Christie, are parsing their words so much. Why would you support them over Trump? Because they basically say Trump's like kind of OK. He did some things I don't agree with. But none of them are going to break out of the 30 points they're all trailing Trump by, by just keep saying what they're saying. Like one of the abiding premises of this podcast is after 2016 is humility and political prognostication, right? And so Tommy, John, and John on Tuesday talked a little bit about some of DeSantis', DeSantis most recent reset and some of his new messaging where he said that Trump lost the election, et cetera. And, you know, and the question was, could he, is there a way he could possibly come back from the dead? And you worked for John Kerry when he was written off for, for dead. And there are some parallels here. Kerry was the initial favorite in that race. He was the choice of a lot of donors looking for someone who could, because of his military record, could beat Bush during a war. Kerry fired his campaign manager, a bunch of staff. Do you see any parallels from what you guys went through in 2004 that could apply to DeSantis here? And the answer can be no. I want to be clear. No, 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 no. But I think that I think that the, the some of the things that are just like a little. First of all, the delta between Carrie and Dean was never as great. Um, the distinctions between Carrie and Dean were you could make a case for like there were differences between the two of them. Dean was very progressive. He had the grassroots, but John Kerry was a statesman and he was going to be going up against Bush during the Iraq war. And so I think that was always a little bit on his side, you know, until we got swift voted. But um, I think that when he, <laughs> that was a dark day. I think that when his reset came, it was exactly like you said, it was the Corleone. I mean, like we had many, so this is why I think it's interesting because everything that DeSantis is doing right now feels like a mini reset. It feels like a change in staff. A change in staff isn't necessarily a reset. When John Kerry brought in Mary Beth Cahill to run the campaign, uh, she was fucking law and order. Like there was, you know, John Kerry had a bad habit of like forum shopping, of asking different staff for different answers until he sort of heard what he wants to hear. And I'm not talking trash. I love the man. He has said this himself. Um, 
he was not great at taking the blame for things when he made mistakes. And I think that Mary Beth Cahill came in and was like, she did more of what Pluff did on our campaign. It was like, this is where we're going to go and this is what we're going to do. And so I think right now what DeSantis is doing is like how we were sort of like limping into Iowa. Like Favreau and I always joke that the last time we saw each other in uh, December of 2003, before the Iowa caucuses, we were at the Pentagon City Mall buying sheets because he was going to Iowa and I was going to New Hampshire and we were sleeping on the floor and we were of other people's houses so that we could do GOTV and that by the time we came back, we would be in the unemployment line together. Like things were quite dark. But I think that when, you know, like JK brought in someone who was like, I'm going to make change. And if you listen to me, we may have a chance. And like, I don't think that DeSantis has done that yet. It doesn't feel like he has decided. And I think that part of that is, is if he brought in someone who is, who had that same kind of point of view, who was going to like rule the campaign with law and order, uh, I think it would mean really taking on Trump in a sincere way. And I'm just not sure that he wants to do that. It, it is interesting. Like, I guess there is some multiversal world where Donald Trump goes to jail next week, right? Mm-hmm, or something mm-hmm. like that happens. And now he can't, it's convicted of a crime. Can't right. run, doesn't run cut some big plea deal that says he's not going to, some world in which Donald Trump disappears and then Ron, Ron DeSantis would probably be maybe the short-term favorite for that just because he's got more know. name idea. Or is it like a free-for-all and now everybody's got a chance and they all feel free to beat the shit out yeah. of Trump and, you know, someone who actually, I don't know, is like a skilled debater or something rises to the top. And I, you know, I sort of think there are three modern examples of people's campaigns collapsing and then coming back to win the nomination. There's Kerry in 04. There is John McCain in 08. Same thing as Kerry. Fired totally. his staff. All new Pick people. Chain strategy. Before Sarah Palin. I, I know. Uh, <laughs> bets on, pulls out Iowa, bets on New Hampshire, wins New Hampshire, and jobs. And then there's Joe Biden who lost the first three contests, one in South Carolina, and then was a nominee like three weeks later. And I think the Kerry one's probably the best parallel to DeSantis because both McCain and Biden were were incredibly well-known. They had 100% name ID. There was a deep wall of affection among them, for them among voters in their party. And they each had a constituency that was going to play a huge role in a primary. McCain had he had real sway with independent moderate voters in New Hampshire, which has an open primary, so he had that waiting for him. And Biden, even when his campaign hit the skids, remained a the dominant candidate with black voters, and he knew he had South Carolina waiting. And John Kerry had Ted Kennedy and his dogs. <laughs> and John, John Kerry also had electability. Even when he, he was not doing well, people thought he was the most electable candidate. People do not think that of Ron DeSantis. I, I struggle to figure out where his win comes. Or even if he were to win Iowa, what's the next place? Where does he have appeal? Because even you would think Florida would be the thing for him, but that's also Trump status. So it's very. Don't you think, though, if Trump, so say Trump goes to jail, right? Trump goes to jail. Don't you think that this ends up, this is what I think, I think it ends up as like a brokered convention. Because I think that you have people, you have Republicans who would do well in certain states, but I feel like it's going to be really hard for them to ever get a consensus because the party's so, so like fractured. It, 
Maybe. The thing about the Republican primary, though, is that most of the delegate, most of the states award their delegates either winner take all or winner take most. And so winning a state by 1%, you can, it's much easier to get to the threshold on the Republican side than the Democratic side. But if Trump's in jail, there is a world in which they could try. You remember the thing that Ted Cruz did where he was like, oh, right. vote your conscience. So, Wait, you know, who knows? Did I just tell on myself that I watched the episode of Veep with the brokered convention yesterday? <laughs> I don't think that's telling on yourself. I'm just telling on myself. I don't care. Today's presenting sponsor is Simply Safe Home Security. If you're a regular listener, you already know our friends at Simply Safe have been revolutionizing home security for over a decade, and now they're making yet another huge advancement with 24/7 live guard protection available only from Simply Safe on a fast protect monitoring plan. I set up a Simply Safe system all by myself, and it works great, and it looks great, and um, I highly recommend it. And the app is the best of the apps, and it's completely reliable. I'm so happy with it. And with live guard protection, you get Simply Safe monitor. Oh my gosh, you are. Shout out to K A M P. Shout out to Radio at the University of Arizona. And Cappy Wati, Pasquayaki, Travel Radio, Travel Radio, Radio, on the Reset Chester Show, Travel Radio, Travel Radio. Completely reliable and so happy. And with live guard protection, you get simply say. The RNC and even the graphic Fox News, who is broadcasting debate, Donald Trump has not yet committed to participate, but he may still be debating it. Here he is at the rally in New Hampshire on Tuesday. Okay, you ready? Poll. We take a free poll. Should I do the debate? Maybe we'll do something else. You know, see, some people say yes, but they hate to say it because it doesn't make sense to do it if you're leading by so much. But they like it for entertainment value because they're selfish. They're selfish. Uh, All right, Alyssa. Do you think Trump really has it in him to see the spotlight to the rest of the field? Do you think there's any downsides to him skipping this debate? I mean, I don't even know. I mean, I think, look, if you, if I were Trump, I would want to do the debate because he is literally surrounded by a bunch of people pretty afraid to attack him, and he's not afraid to attack anything or anybody. So I think that if he gets on stage with the people who've made the cut, I just look like TV is his secret weapon. Like, I don't think that he's, uh, you know, I don't, I, I certainly do not like the man, but if I were to say things that he uses to his advantage, television and debates have been one of them. And so, you know, I think that if I'm Trump, look, he likes to build everything to a crescendo. So I'm like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And then he's, he wants to fold. So he says, you know what? My people want me to do it and I have to do what they want me to do. And he gives himself cover and he does the debate. That's what I would do. Um, I think if he skips the debate, the the RNC, like, w- literally, what is the fucking point of a debate without him in it? I mean, they're, like, I don't know. 
And if he does not do this debate, he's almost certainly not doing the next debate, which is at the Reagan Library, and he has a grudge against the Reagan Library based on something at some point in time. What did they do to him? (laughs) I think they did a series of speeches where they invited all the Republican candidates to speak, and they did not invite Trump. I think think that's it. But Uh, he he has held larger grievances for more petty slights than that, so I don't even really know. Fair. Here's my take. I think Donald Trump would be an absolute moron for doing the debate. Really? Because he is... Think about how this plays out. So when everyone's made... The, everyone of consequence has, has made the debate stage at this point. Even Mike Pence qualified for the debate last week. So you got Christie, Scott, Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, Pence. You get, Doug Burgum has made the debate, believe it or not. Um, really? I didn't see that one. He spent a lot of money uh, in ads to get there. He's a billionaire, He's which is a surprise, but he is. Um, the... Here's what. Here's how this plays out. He's up by a ton of points. He, if he doesn't go, what are all these people going to do? Beat the shit out of Ron DeSantis. Oh, you know and, what? That's a good point. I didn't think about that. That's a good point. And so he'll just sit back. He'll send some truths that the press will immediately tweet out and, or X out or whatever words we're using these days. And he'll comment on it. And they'll all look really small. And he'll stay above the field. And then he doesn't have to engage until September at the earliest, which is when, or the third debate. I don't even. I think the second debate's in September. So the third debate is in October. So he gets. So now, now he's like three months from the Iowa caucus when this happens. And so you're right. I mean, I'm not saying you're right, but I'm saying I see your I see your point. I did not think about them all t- trying to take down DeSantis, which I mean, I can mean. you just imagine how DeSantis will handle that? It'll be so good. Because instead of going after tr- Trump, Chris Christie's going to go after DeSantis. He's going to try to do you know DeSantis' way to DeMarco Rubio. I'm into that. I'm glad not. August 23rd will be a good time. Yeah, we'll tune in. With, and it, it's on a Wednesday night, so we'll have hot commentary on the Thursday pod about it. So. <laughs> All right, one more debate thing. Last night, in an interview with Newsmax's Eric Bowling, Trump said he would not sign the RNC's loyalty pledge, which requires candidates to do two things, support the nominee and commit to not run as a third-party candidate. So far, the only people to sign the pledge are Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. What do you mean? Like, I mean, why, why would he? Because he won't. Because because by signing the pledge, what he's saying to his supporters is that he thinks the other people running would be okay presidents, right? Isn't that what you're saying, that ultimately you have enough faith in the people who you're running against? And he would never, ever cop to that. Like, that's, that's it is him and him alone. There is, there is no other, uh, there is no other uh, king for the GOP. So I totally understand, even though, even if he, though, even if he did say it, everyone would know it was a lie, but I totally understand why he wouldn't. I mean, there was a similar pledge in 2016 that he said he would sign, but then also said he would just violate it if he decided he wanted to. So it's, right. it's like there's no enforcement mechanism here. So right. it's not like they can do anything. I, I kind of think I'm – he knows that even if he does – the RNC and Fox want him at the debates yeah. so bad that they're not going to keep him off stage for not signing it. So it doesn't matter. I do think it sort of benefits him more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it puts, you know, you have like the Chris Christie's and the Mike Pence's and, the, you know, these people, and people who, are, who have somewhat run someone explicitly against Trump saying that they would support him. 
right, or not run yeah. as a third-party candidate. I mean, none of this really matters. It's just, it, he just knows he has so much leverage here that he's just using it for shits and giggles, right? He yeah, just that's exactly is doing right. it because he can, and he knows that he's already made RNC chairwoman Rom, Romna Romney McDaniel. Stop using Romney in her name just out of pettiness, right. so he, why not do this too? Totally true. Just a raging asshole. That's just what, that's what it, it always comes back to that. All right. We'll be right back with our interview with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. But first, do you love Taylor Swift? Do you love John Favreau? Are you Emily Favreau? I can't believe I'm reading this, and I can't believe this is in the housekeeping on the one day John decides not to pod. But on the latest episode of Offline, John Favreau breaks down how Taylor Swift has navigated the internet age to build one of the most successful musical careers of all time. It is a fascinating conversation. Then Max Fisher returns for the tech roundup to unpack Elon's Twitter rebrand and Ron DeSantis' cruel summer. New episodes of Offline drop every Sunday morning wherever you get your podcasts. All right, in honor of the huge victory